The sermon text this morning is from the book of Luke, chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers, who stood at a distance and lifted up their voice, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Well, you know, this Christmas time, we always think about, oh, whatever kind of traditions you have. One of ours is to watch the Christmas Carol, the Charles Dickens uh, least novel made into a movie. And, uh, you know, it, we, we, we look at the film and we always just remark over this transformation that Ebenezer Scrooge makes, you know, at the very end. And it's, it's a sweet, beautiful, beautiful film. But I was thinking about that earlier this week and I wasn't so overwhelmed with the transformation as much as the contrast. Uh, there's a great contrast that I never really noticed before. The, the contrast in Ebenezer Scrooge, who really had everything that he ever wanted. He... he he had money, he had position, he had fame, he had risen to the top, and yet he was marked by this incredible ingratitude, this, uh, this lack of thankfulness that is, that is really profound when you look at it. A and the point of contrast is, of course, with Tiny Tim. You know, Tiny Tim is the son of Bob Cratchit, who's the employee of Ebenezer Scrooge, and he has really virtually nothing, and yet he's happy, he's filled with joy, and he's grateful. A and, and even as you learn that his life is ebbing away, he's still satisfied. He's still grateful for even the reduced things that he has. And I was thinking about the nature of ingratitude that's fundamental, it's almost endemic to the human soul. This lack of thankfulness that marks us and this world. And it makes me very thankful uh, that, that Christ has come to bring a kingdom that is marked by gratitude and, and marked by a deep, a deep joy. You know, we're, we're, today celebrates the beginning of Advent. That's the four weeks before Christmas. It, it, Advent just means simply coming. So it's the time of the church where we celebrate his coming. We know that he's come in the flesh uh, to dwell among us and to bring a kingdom. The kingdom of God is what he's come to do. And, and he displays this kingdom through, through joy and through life. It, this kingdom is marked by forgiveness. This kingdom is marked by freedom. And so we're going to look over the next four weeks is we're going to look at these various miracle stories. These miracle stories a kind of highlight the glory of the kingdom. So when Jesus came in his earthly ministry and he performed these miracles, 
It was to validate the kingdom. So if I just come to you and say, hey, I'm starting a kingdom, you know, you would laugh that off. But if I raise a dead man, and I begin to heal lepers, and I begin to give sight to the blind, it might grab your attention a little bit more. And so Jesus performing these miracles, not just to validate the legitimacy of him being a king, bringing a kingdom, uh, but Jesus performs these miracles to give us a glimpse of the nature of the kingdom. He's pulling back the curtain, if you will. He's letting us look into heaven. This is my kingdom. This is what heaven is going to be like. This is going to be what it will be like when you're with me forever, in fullness. And so the miracles performed in the Gospels are like little foretastes of heaven for us. The little pictures of the kingdom. The one we'll look at today is, of course, the healing of the ten lepers. And we see in this one leper that returns an incredible gratitude and joy that should mark all of us. So if you're here and you're a Christian, that joy is the unique feature. Ingratitude may be endemic to the human soul of those that don't know God. But those who have been touched by the mercy of Christ, they're marked by a deep gratitude and joy, regardless of circumstances, that there's a deep gratitude and joy. So that's what I want to hit. I just want to challenge you in terms of your understanding of what it means to be filled with joy or gratitude over the coming of this kingdom that Jesus has sought to bring. So in the text, look with me just in 11 to 14, because the first thing you see in gratitude is that gratitude must begin with a need. It must begin with a need, a, a deep need. Notice in 11, he says, on the way to Jerusalem. Now, that thing is packed with freight. Now, we just jumped into Luke 17, uh, but if you were to have been reading Luke, you'd read in chapter 9, verse 53, that uh, Luke records Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. And, and, and what Luke is doing here is he's saying that uh, Jesus is beginning his final lap. He's now heading to Jerusalem where he'll die. Uh, Jesus is going to Jerusalem with the clear intent that he will suffer for our sins on a cross, be crucified, and, and take our shame and guilt and die for us. So in his mind, on the way to Jerusalem, this is a journey story, but the journey has an end for him that will be a cross. So when it says, on the way to Jerusalem, that's in his mind. Now, if you're walking your last journey, what is on your mind? I mean, it, it, people tend to be either singularly focused on something or they're distracted all over the place. One thing most people struggle to do is serve others. And you see Jesus on the way. He meets these ten lepers. And it's, a, it's a terrible lot. I mean, I mean these lepers... Leprosy was a horrible disease now, but particularly in that time. You know, when you think of leprosy, leprosy, in, at least in its worst forms, is this bacteria that begins to affect the nerves and the skin. And it weakens the muscles, the tendons contract. It, it kind of causes uh, a deformity to the body. This, uh, that it's, it's these ulcers, or it's these nodules that will ulcerate and begin to deaden the feeling of, of the extremities, and that's why they are put into harm's way. You, you reach for something hot, but you don't feel it, and so you end up destroying your extremities. People say it's like death by inches. It was a terrible physical malady. But there's more when you think of leprosy. Uh, the social implications of contracting leprosy were, were tremendous. It tremendously leads to loneliness and despair. Uh, you would be separated from your family. You couldn't be with people. 
In Leviticus, you, you were moved outside the camp. You were to leave your hair undone. You were to wear torn clothes. You were to cover your mouth and the lower part of your face. And any time anyone would come near you, you would have to shout, unclean, unclean. Can you imagine what it would be like to be the herald of your own unworthiness? To be the proclaimer of your own sinfulness? To have to shout to people according to rabbinical law, that is, that is rabbis writing laws on the Old Testament, helping to understand them, that if the, if the wind was blowing, you'd need to stay 50 yards from people. Now, can you imagine if you're married, you're never with your spouse again, at least in, in an intimate way. If you have a child, you'll never put them on your lap again or hold their hand. I, I, I mean, it was devastating relationally. So you look at these 10 lepers, they, they had this physical malady, the social implications were overwhelming, uh, but, but then even besides that, they, by the way, they, were, they would be like zombies. They're like the walking dead. But the spiritual implications are significant because they saw this as a sign of God's judgment, of sin. It, they were a walking metaphor for sin. You know, sin separates us from God. Now listen, God is holy. Let's not... Let's not kid ourselves about him kind of being the Santa Claus in the sky. God is holy and he deals with sin. And we see that in the very first few chapters of the Bible, that sin separates us from God. Well, leprosy, in absolute bold terms, shows us this is what it looks like when you're separated from God. You're separated from your community. They couldn't go to worship. They couldn't make sacrifices. They couldn't appear before God in the temple. And so you kind of get this do you get the weight that I'm trying to encourage you on? That this would be devastating. The needs are profound. Have you ever needed anything this way? This is why these uh, ten lepers, when they saw Jesus, they lifted up their voice. They probably had to lift it up because leprosy could often strike the larynx and you would lose your ability to, to speak normally. You'd have a raspy voice. And they lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master. They must have known of his ministry by referring to him by his name. Master is a unique expression for Jesus in the Gospels. It means one with power and authority. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, they're requesting mercy. Now, that's normally not done by us. To request mercy means that you recognize you have nothing to bring. You've got no chips to barter. Uh, you are without hope, you're without connections, you're without any resources. You're, you're wholly contingent on the kindness of the one that you are appealing to. That's what you do when you ask for mercy. You got nothing. You just need mercy. You need something that you and he or she knows you don't deserve. They cry out. Jesus, remember now, on his way to Jerusalem, looks to them. He doesn't heal them with a touch like he did the leper in chapter 5. He doesn't heal them with a word like he did the centurion. He just tells them to go show themselves to the priest. Now, the priest couldn't heal leprosy, and the priest could not cure leprosy. They were kind of the health inspectors, if you were. They were the ones that validated healing had taken place so that you could reintegrate into society. So it should catch us by surprise that he sends them to the priest while they're lepers. Uh, it, it, why? Well, I think Jesus is testing their faith. 
Because for them to start walking while they have leprosy presumes that they must believe that he can heal them. So they had some level of faith. Now, how long did they walk? I have no idea. A mile? Two miles? But they walked. And then can you imagine? Who was it? Who began to notice that fingers started forming again? Or skin began healing? Or, or, or the, the color of life coming back to skin that had long since died? Can you imagine this mass healing? It's like 10 people being born again. I mean, they're coming to life in front of their eyes. Can you imagine their joy? Well, let me tell you, their joy, you know, is tied to the depth of their, their knowledge of how much they needed help. In other words, to the degree that you know you have a need, when that need is met, your joy is as high as the need was deep. Their joy was profound. So, so when you, let's just stop here at verse Verse 14, when you think about this kind of story, have you ever known such need? Have you ever been so needy that you would cry out like that? You know, I think it's kind of self-evident that the increased need leads to this increased crying out for help. You know, we see that, in the, at least in the physical world. So if you sit before the doctor and he says to you uh, that you have an ulcer, uh, you're going to have a different level of need when he says you have stage four cancer. You know, you know the, the, in the physical world, it's easier to understand the depth of our need. But have you ever wondered why we can be so acutely aware of our needs physically, but rarely do we really consider our needs spiritually. You know, we tend to just assume or assign ourselves a good position with God. We're shocked to think that God may not be happy with us. We, we have this ability to, to kind of grade ourselves on a curve regarding our own spiritual position with God. We can't think that he might have something with us. I was thinking through how to get this, you know, I, I, remind, I remembered this thing I read a long time ago called um, the tight pants syndrome. It's called the tight pants syndrome. This was um, uh, an expression coined by an internist in Connecticut, Dr. Harold Bessa. And he was dealing with all these men who had all kinds of various abdominal issues. And he couldn't trace why they were having all these issues. Nothing physiological that he could determine. And what he found is that these men that he was dealing with were wearing pants that were on average three inches too small. Now, as he began to investigate this a little bit more, he found out that these men, generally in their middle age, uh, whenever they would need new pants and their wives or girlfriends would get them, they would always tell them, the size of the pants that they wore basically when they were in college. <laughs> and they just assumed that they hadn't really changed. They still were a 32-inch waist. And on average, these men were missing it by three inches, and it was causing these pains. And you can Google it. It's tight pants syndrome. We, we, just have this, we just have this ability to look at ourselves and say, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm in the same shape I was back then. You know, or you watch a movie, the good guys and the bad guys. Who do you line up with? You line up with the good guys. Rarely do we consider, do we have these spiritual needs with God? 
This is the genius of a miracle story. What the miracle story, Jesus obviously knows every miracle ends in death. He uses the physical need to point to the spiritual reality that you have needs there as well. You know, the raising of the dead. We have this desperate need to have some answer to dying. And we don't want to think that way. We don't think about our death. We say, well, if I die, as if it's an option for you, you know, we, or, or this, this cleansing of the leper, pointing to the sinfulness of men and women, or the healing of the paralytic, showing that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. The genius of the miracles is that all the miracles are working on physical issues that have spiritual counterparts that we are blind to. And he's trying to show us that he has come to deliver us, not to give us our best life now, not to fix our problems now, but to reveal himself to us and our great need for him. This is really the beginning of Christianity. The beginning of Christianity is not having an orthodox system of faith. It's knowing our need. The need to be reconciled to God. That's why Jesus in the, in the uh, Beatitudes, the first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who know they are poverty. They have the level of poverty where it comes to spiritual strength. I think about that parable of the, 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 Jesus tells this to the Pharisees, that a Pharisee goes in the temple and a tax collector goes in, and the Pharisee stands there close to the front, and he's thanking God that he's not like all these other sinners. And then you've got the tax collector in the background. He's not even looking up to God. He's just beating his breast saying, have mercy on me. That's what these men asked for. That's what we ask for, to enter into this Christian life, to have mercy on me. And isn't it a beautiful thing when you read this story? Don't you love the way Jesus loves? Don't you, don't you love his compassion? You know, the gods of this world generally are cruel and capricious. But you have one here on his way to Jerusalem that stops before a bunch of nameless leopards at a nameless town and the creator of the universe gives him their ear. He reaches out to the weak and the broken. He reaches out to those that are struggling. Luke's gospel is filled with examples. The women, the children, the crippled, the leper, the blind, the deaf. Those that we kind of turn away from, he moves towards to meet their needs. It's amazing to hear Jesus say, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened. I'll give you rest. This is the invitation. Have you responded to that invitation? First, you must know your need. You have to know your need. And then to respond, yes, I need your mercy. Have mercy on me, Master. This is the beginning of the Christian life. And if you're a Christian here today, Please don't grow indifferent to this mercy. It's not as if we still don't need his mercy to finish well. You think about the life of the Apostle Paul. He's a, he's a big man on campus in the Christian faith. He's a, he's a big man. But when you, when you trace the trajectory of how he identifies himself in his various letters, he says he's an apostle. Later on, he says he's the least of the apostles. Then he refers to himself as a sinner, and at the very end of his ministry, he refers to himself as the chief of sinners. 
He's growing in his need for mercy, even though he's been reconciled to God. He still needs that mercy. While we are in the flesh, the Christian needs the mercy of God. We are not home yet. We need his mercy. So when you think about gratitude, gratitude begins with a recognition of our absolute need for the sheer grace of God to reconcile us to himself. We need that. If you don't ever start there, then you're never even on the right track. It begins there. And you see that God uses the physical malady to raise up the spiritual need. He may do that in your life. The second thing you see about the nature of gratitude is that it results in worship. Look in verse 15 and 16 with me. It results in worship. In 15, he says, Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Notice he, and he says, Now he was a Samaritan. Uh, what's interesting here is that this one that comes back pushes off his spiritual responsibilities to go to the priest. That was according to the Old Testament law. So he pushes aside that kind of that legal spiritual responsibility. And he also pushes aside his desire to see his family. Can you imagine, just assume for a minute, that you have not touched your family in three years, and you are now healed. You can be proclaimed healed and run to your family. Can you imagine the excitement? I get excited after being gone for four days to see Carol. I, I can't imagine what it would be like for years and now he's healed. But what does he do? He comes back. The same voice that he screamed for mercy, he's now proclaiming praise with that voice. He's now thanking God. And not only does he thank God, but he falls at the feet of God's servant. Now, he was a Samaritan. He knew something of the Messiah. And so he falls at the feet and he worships Christ. The lowest, most kind of undignified part of our body, our dirty feet he falls at. I imagine he clasped his feet and thanked him, was grateful for what he had done. He leaves the other nine. He, he puts aside all of his personal desires. How far did he have to come back? Could he have said like the others, well, we don't know where he is now. We couldn't go back and find him anyway. Oh, no, I'm going to look for him. I've got to thank him. And I, Luke adds that little line there. That's why these little phrases and sentences can have so much weight. Now he was a Samaritan. It, that's, I think that's a gentle chide. These other nine had all these spiritual privileges, being part of the people of God, the covenants of God. He was the Samaritan. The Samaritans were seen as dogs. They, they were even, they were going to, the Jews at least thought that God would fuel the fires of hell with Samaritans. So that's the way they were seen. That's the animosity that they had. And yet the one who was farthest came the closest. He came right to Jesus and thanked them. Those, uh, those with spiritual privilege have to be warned. Don't be indifferent to what you've been given. Don't be ungrateful. What he, what he shows us about this gratitude that leads to worship is that he made the difference and the distinction that he, he worshipped the giver 
not simply the gifts. Now listen, the others, they were healed, they were helped, they were delivered. And I have no doubt at some level that they were thankful. But they didn't come back to worship. You know, many of us can be grateful for the parents we have, the homes we were, we've been raised in, the schools we went to. We can be thankful for the health that we have, the jobs that we have. But if it doesn't move in a vertical direction to thanking God for these things, then I think we run the risk of spiritual adultery because here's what's happening. We love the gifts without loving the giver. How can that be? We love the gifts without loving the giver. That's what, that's what they did. But he loved the gifts. Now, I, I want you to know it's good and right to thank God for the gifts that he has. But I want you to know that these gifts that he gives to us, particularly in salvation, but all the other common grace gifts that he gives to us, these are to be tutors to us, to lead us to God. They're to lead us to worship God. And one author said it this way, they're kind of like the shafts of glory. Shafts of glory. In other words, God is seeking to draw worship from us, not by threat, but by pleasure. He gives us pleasures. He gives us good things so as to elicit thanksgiving from his people. He's not a God that says, you better be grateful. You better be thankful. He doesn't do that. He pleasures us to draw forth thanks. It's like, you know, when the, the rays of sun come breaking through the trees, particularly in the spring, and your eyes are kind of drawn back up to the beauty of the sun that sends these rays out. That's what the gifts that he has given. The, the healings or the, the gifts of grace of family or health or all that you have and you're going to be celebrating this month, these are all just reminders as to the giver of the gifts so that we would love them, to lead us into worship him. It says, every good gift comes from the Father above. Are you, do you find that you are grateful for these gifts? Do they lead you to worship? Uh, for, take for Sunday morning, for example. Is Sunday morning a, a burden for you to come and give thanks to God? Do you wonder in your mind, well, I hope they play the type of music I like. Do you think, I hope the preaching is you know, relevant this week. I hope it makes sense to me. I hope the same thing, frankly. Uh, <laughs> but do you come thinking, well, I don't want to run into so-and-so, and I don't want to get caught up in a conversation with this person. Do you come begrudgingly, or do you come joyfully? Are, are, do you embrace the costs that it takes to think less of yourself and to think more of him? Do, do you come wanting to give thanks to the one who has loved you from the foundation of this world? That's what true gratitude has to express itself in worship. What is the level of joy in your worship? And may it be tied more to your appreciation or lack thereof rather than some of the stuff that we do up here to just facilitate it? Could it be the heart that we bring to this place? So gratitude begins with the need, and then gratitude expresses itself in worship. But then, but then last, gratitude, and this is kind of the test for us, 
Gratitude really reveals the genuineness of our faith. Gratitude reveals the genuineness of our faith. It, it kind of confirms the validity of our faith. Well, let me explain why I, why I say that. When you look at the questions that Jesus asked in 17, I mean, don't they just hit you? I mean, it was like a hammer on my soul. Were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? You know, do you hear the shock in his voice? You know, one author said it this way. He says, even he who knew what was in man marveled at the greatness of their ingratitude. Their ingratitude. <clears throat> marveled over it. Now, I, I, don't, I don't think for a minute that these other nine weren't happy. I don't think that they were, I, I'm sure that they were over the moon with this healing and the fact that now they could be reunited to their families. But, but, he, but here's, it didn't result in worship. I, I mean, they, they had to believe at one level because they began walking to the, chief pri to the priests, but, but they didn't have genuine faith as evidenced by missing the greater blessing. They saw the issue as skin deep, that, that when the skin was restored, then Jesus, we're good. I, I'll take it from here. It was just this idea, when the problem was removed, their faith seemed to be removed or evaporate. You know, John Calvin said that want and hunger give birth to faith. Fullness kills it. That when the trials are removed, we easily forget. They missed the greater blessing. Their ingratitude brought about a restoration, but they were not made whole. They weren't made whole. They're the foil to be contrasted with the Samaritan. He knew his problem was greater than skin deep. He knew the physical issue was just a pointer to the spiritual reality. He knew that if this Jesus from God, establishing a kingdom marked by the cleansing of lepers, that if he can heal my body, he can heal my soul. That's what drove him back. We know that he had faith in Christ as the Messiah. Why? Because Jesus says it to him. Your faith has made you well. <clears throat> he doesn't use the word well that was used earlier in this passage about cleansing. He says your faith has saved you. It's saved you. You've been reconciled. Ingratitude blinded the eyes of the nine, but this one was reconciled, forgiven, and adopted. An author says that gratitude is the chief characteristic of the redeemed man or woman. He was grateful and he came back. And coming back revealed his faith was genuine. Gratitude reveals your faith. Ingratitude reveals lack of faith. Check the level of your faith. Even now, listen, we're in this time of Thanksgiving and Christmas and it's a sweet time. I think people, there's this uptick in, in thankfulness and gratitude. But is it just seasonal? Is it just circumstantial? Does it have direction to it? Or is it just, I'm thankful? There has to be one to whom we're thankful. It reveals their superficiality of faith. They had a veneer of gratitude. And it was revealed in the fact that they didn't believe Jesus Christ to be the Son of God who had come to establish a kingdom of which he's drawing people in who would be marked by gratitude. They just wanted the problems removed so they could move on with life as they saw fit. It shows them 
Their lack of gratitude shows that they had a lack of faith. Now, don't mistake faith here. Faith is a confusing thing often. You can have faith and not be saving faith. We call it miracle faith. You, you hear somebody say, you know, I almost pulled out. I just, for a second, I hesitated. For some reason, in a car would have gone, went right by. I would have been T-boned. I would have been dead. I, boy, God saved me on that one. There is a miracle faith, a faith that God does preserve us, but it doesn't result in any worship. It doesn't result in gratitude for him sending a son to die for us. You see a similar type of faith in James 1. In James 1, the devils believe, it says, and they even tremble. Gracious, we don't even tremble. They're trembling, but that's not saving faith. Saving faith is when you trust in God's mercy being revealed through the coming of Christ taking our sins, dying for us, and reconciling us to God. That's why Jesus himself in John 5, 24, he says, he who honors the Son honors the Father. If you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father. Don't think that they don't come as a pair. It's God the Father sending God the Son to die for us. And if you see that, you've been touched by God the Spirit. <clears throat> so check the level of your faith. Are you grateful to God for his Son, Jesus? And then secondly, confess your ingratitude. Confess, this is, the, this is the threat, even to the Christian. You know, that's why Psalm 103, <clears throat> Psalmist says, forget not his benefits. The implication is you can. You can forget him. You know, J.C. Rao was a great bishop of um, Anglican Church in the 19th century. He said this, he said, the lesson before us is humbling. The best of us are far too like the nine. We are more prone to pray than to praise. We are more disposed to ask God for what we need rather than to thank him for what we have. And his contemporary said, we write our blessings in sand and we write our complaints in stone. Are you a grateful person? Remember, ingratitude is the primal sin. You see it there in the garden. You give me all those trees, but I want that one. Why can't I have that one? That's the one I want. Why can't I have it? It's the primal sin. It's the sin of the human soul. Do you complain more than you express thanks? Do you grumble more than you express your gratefulness? I mean, don't you chide your children if you're a parent? Don't you want them to be grateful? You know, Shakespeare and King Lear he wrote these words in 1605, how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have than to have a thankless child. We see that as parents, but what about yourself? Are you marked by a thankfulness? Folks, we need to cultivate a thankfulness. You need to be a student of your own history. What has God done? Go home today and put on a piece of paper just the last month. How has God blessed you? Start with the gospel. That would be a hint. And then move down from there. And, and write down, what has he done for you? All that he has blessed you with. And give thanks to him. Even for those struggles and trials that you have that wake you up to your need, you'll thank him for those. Let's thank him now. We want to cultivate. We want to go back and remember who we are. I did that. I spent some time uh, yesterday just thinking, who was Tom Mercer before 
he mercifully opened my eye. And I thought, what would this church do if I just laid it out? If I just gave you an unvarnished description of Tom Mercer? thought, we can't do that. <laughs> what has he done for me? He has, yeah, graciously kind. We'll never, we'll never stop thanking him for his work for us. We want to be people of joy because he has delivered us. He has forgiven us. And he's reconciled us to himself. So, so test your faith. What does your gratitude display about your faith? And confess ingratitude. He is merciful. You see it in the lives of the lepers. And then cultivate gratitude. Cultivate it. Ask your spouse or ask a friend, do you see me as grateful? Do you see me as a person growing in gratitude for all that God is and has done? This is the difference Jonathan Edwards said that nominal Christianity sees Christ as useful. True faith sees Christ as beautiful. Do you see him as beautiful? I pray you do. Ingratitude is an ugly thing. It's a poison to the soul. Gratitude, giving thanks, is the way we glorify God. It's the way we thanking him. In fact, one author said it this way. He says, I've often wondered, in part simply because the term is so rarely used, what it means to glorify God forever. It will undoubtedly mean a great many things, but one of them surely must be that we will continually thank him. We will thank him for his graciousness and his goodness to us and for inviting us into conversation. Along this line, I would think that we anticipate our chief and highest end every time we behold something beautiful and we find, after we've exclaimed how wonderful something is, that we're almost compelled to say, thank you, God, for that. Our destiny is to say these three, these small words forever and so experience the gratitude that is the perfection of our happiness. Thank you for saving me. Thank you. Let me pray for us and then... We'll prepare for the table.